Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Data is the new oil. That's a phrase I've been boring Louisa senseless with since we started this podcast six years ago. Today, I'm adding another phrase to that. In 2015, Jack Ma of Alibaba said, quote, controlling data means controlling the future. This month, we look at China's move to surveil and harvest data from its people and how this has been facilitated by U.S. firms. I'm flying solo today, as you'll have noticed, as Louisa is up in Sydney for the Walkley Awards. But I'm delighted to welcome Josh Chin and Lisa Lin from the Wall Street Journal, authors of the new book, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. And our third guest is Anne Kokus, the CKEN professor at the University of Virginia, who's the author of Trafficking Data, How China is Winning the Battle for Digital Sovereignty. And that's a pretty big call. Um, to sum up your thesis in one minute or less, what proof is there that China is winning the battle for digital sovereignty? So I think that this is a this is a great question. And what we can see within the Chinese context is that there is this expansive vision for extraterritorial data control that is outlined through a wide range of different Chinese laws and policies. Now, the one advantage that China has over other countries that are that have these kind of expansive visions for data control, um, like Russia or like Iran, um, are the wide range of different apps and platforms that are being adopted globally um, in places like the European Union, in the United States, um, in Australia and Japan and Korea. Um, and this is a this is an advantage that we see China having that really is not possible to compete with in a lot of other in a lot of other global contexts. Josh, your turn in the hot seat. In a minute or less, uh, at what point do you think China really became a surveillance state? And how far-reaching is the social control that you write about? So I think China sort of officially became a surveillance state uh, starting in, in early 2017, and that is when uh, there, was, there was a new uh, Communist Party boss in, in Xinjiang in the, the far northwestern corner of China who started to roll out what is, um, I think, still by far the most suffocating uh, and sophisticated effort anywhere to to control an entire population using surveillance data. Um, so that was the start of it. But it, it has since uh, since then, and, and partly uh, with the help of the, the COVID pandemic pandemic spread throughout China. Um, so it's been a, it's been a long process, but it but it began about five years ago. We all remember back in 2006 or thereabouts when they were first rolling out the Great Firewall um, initially, and it was, it was a bit of a joke um, at first. It was so clumsy and so clunky and, and, and so easy to get around. I mean, um, what happened between 2006 and, and the date Josh gives, 2017, um, to China's online surveillance technology? Like, how did they get so good so quickly? It all really boils down to... You know, new breakthrough technologies coming to the fore. Uh, the the biggest one being deep learning, and some somewhere around the turn of the decade, uh, we had researchers realize that you could train algorithms very quickly with the use of sudden chips, sudden very advanced chips called graphic processing units. So prior to the use of GPUs, AI was always this thing that was always stuck in the PhD labs. Researchers were looking at it; it was always the next big thing, but there was no commercial application. And post-deep learning, we realized how quickly AI could be used in a commercial space, for example, with image recognition, facial recognition, uh, even you know, character recognition. 
So a lot of these technologies have really enabled China to be like the surveillance state it is today because, you know, facial recognition propels some of those cameras you see in Xinjiang or image and character recognition propels the censorship you see on Weibo, China's social media platform today. Mm. And Anne, I mean, you argue that in China's role as this um, global data extractor is actually grounded in U.S. Um, companies or U.S. capitalism, in particular the exploitive data gathering practices of U.S. companies that's been going on for years. I mean, can you unpack that inter- interdependence between China and Silicon Valley um, for us? Yeah, so um, Silicon Valley firms are, are known for pioneering this idea of surveillance capitalism, a term introduced by uh, Shoshana Zuboff, this idea of the monetization of the human experience through um, through user data. Now, the U.S. has has benefited significantly through the the rapid growth of Silicon Valley platforms like social media platforms like Facebook or Instagram or you know other companies like Google or Amazon because of their ability to extract data in a U.S. context that has very few data protections for users. And those data protections that do exist are highly fragmented. So we're talking about state by state, sector by sector, certain types of healthcare data, certain types of financial data in some states. Um, There are demographic requirements. So people under 13 are protected in a way that people over 14 are not protected. Um, So we have this weird data security system that permits extensive data acquisition that is then monetized and has led to extreme enrichment um, on Wall Street. So there's this system, and then congressional leaders are then funded by these very wealthy corporations and very wealthy people on Wall Street who have benefited from those those corporate IPOs and and their stock growth. So in the context of the U.S., there's very little incentive um, from a regulatory standpoint to make meaningful changes. This has led to a landscape where Silicon Valley firms have really driven this extractive world and have globalized these extractive platforms. Now, what we have in the U.S. is a case where TikTok has come and WeChat have come to also extract user data in the U.S. using that same fragmented regulatory landscape. But instead of only paying only paying homage to their corporate overlords, they now are also subject to Chinese national data security audits. Um, and the Hong Kong national security law in ways where their parent companies um, or their or related companies, depending on who you talk to about the specific relationship between TikTok and ByteDance, um, they are then, or you know, WeChat and Tencent are then subject to to Chinese government pressures to share that data. Is this something that goes beyond the US? Because you argue that China is undermining national sovereignty and in particular what you call data sovereignty through its digital trade. How big do you think that is a risk? Is it just a risk for Chinese companies operating in the US or does it extend further, say, for example, to people in Australia who might be uploading TikTok videos? I mean, not, not that I would do that, but, you know. Of course, it's it's an important, I think it's, it's an important question. I focus on the US because the US pioneered this model and is actually very proud of this, the companies that have emerged out of this highly extractive model um, and benefits mightily in terms of its national or its global power because of the power of these of these firms. But we have seen really significant data extraction from other countries. Um, There are countries where the difference between the United States and countries like Australia or places like the European Union and Japan is that there actually are more data protections 
for users in Australia and in the European Union and in Japan. So there are potential national protections. So companies like TikTok or WeChat actually have some kind of potential legal ramifications for their behavior. In the US at this point, there are very few legal ramifications that they might face unless they're extracting data for people who are under 13, for example. Now, what we do see is that even when there are laws in place, so I was in Japan this summer for, for three months and spoke with a lot of Japanese policymakers, and there are, there are quite robust data privacy regulations in Japan, but even with that, the platform line um, subcontracted some of their AI services to a Japanese firm that then subcontracted them to a Chinese firm, and then the data of Japanese users was moved to to China as part of that subcontracting process. So even with robust data protections, the you know data supply chain makes it very difficult to actually trace how user data is used. Um, so I would I would urge anyone on this on this call or on this podcast to really think very carefully about what they put on their phone and and what they interact with on a regular basis. Okay. Josh, you've, I mean, staying with the companies, you've tracked how American companies have been involved in helping to construct the CCP's surveillance state um, and even trace parallels to IBM's involvement in the Holocaust. I mean, break it down for us. How much responsibility do Western companies have for China's shiny and very effective surveillance state? Silicon Valley and American companies essentially helped uh, midwife the the Chinese surveillance state from the very beginning, uh, from when it was in its most embryonic phase uh, in the in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So when, when China was just, when the Communist Party was just coming to terms with the internet and trying to figure out how to control it and, and, and censor it and manage it, they held a the first ever security expo, an expo that, that continues to be held every year now in, in, in Beijing and I believe Shanghai. And the uh, guests of honor were a who's who of, of big Western tech companies. You had Cisco Systems, you had maybe Oracle, I think. Um, you had Nortel Networks uh, from Canada, which, which now no longer exists. But all of these companies were um, were there. They were lined up. They were ready to sell systems to the Chinese government, and they did. And they helped, uh, they helped basically build uh, the infrastructure of the Great Firewall. They helped uh, China's police uh, build things like uh, fingerprint databases and that sort of thing. And they've been deeply involved ever since. Um, and so if you, if you fast forward a couple of decades, uh, more recently you have companies like Intel that were involved in not just selling chips to, to the Chinese surveillance industry, but also nurturing startups um, with, with both capital and knowledge and advice. Um, and if you look at the time when they, when they were doing this, um, when this was really a sort of a hot area of investment for American companies in the you know four or five, six years ago, um, they were sort of openly openly talking about about what a great profit center this was going to be, how much potential there was in surveil in the surveillance industry in China. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a little bit different from 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 IBM and the Holocaust uh, in the sense that there's more plausible deniability now uh, because, as Anne was talking about, you know, the sort of data supply chain being really complex, the, the hardware supply chain is also really complex. Uh, and that makes it possible for companies like Intel or, or the, another chip company named NVIDIA uh, to sort of say, we're just selling this stuff. We don't know where our, where our products end up or how they uh, end up being used, and we can't. So that's sort of a, it's an attempt to absolve them of, of responsibility, but they are certainly, you know, the, the Chinese surveillance state probably doesn't run without American technology. 
Yeah, I mean, and there clearly is plausible deniability. And, and Lizzie, you've spent a lot of time talking to these US companies and their executives um, in, in your work. I mean, how do the executives look the other way and partner up on projects with Orwellian-sounding names like Deep Glint? I mean, what, what, how do they justify this to themselves? Yeah, I, I think, you know, to, to understand this, you really have to go back to when China joined the WTO, right? And like, su- suddenly it was this whole big market that was opened up to the world. And it wasn't just seen as a factory floor towards like the turn of the decade and then the start of the 2010s. You start to see China really mature as a consumer market on its own. It became... You know, it quickly overtook the U.S. as the world's largest automobile market at some point in time. And very quickly, you know, you found like Estee Lauder, Nike, Adidas, and all these Western consumer brands calling China like next big thing. So it's very easy, I think, from a corporate point of view to, to have this naive optimism about the market and completely forget about what China is capable of on the human rights front. For example, Tiananmen Square, you know, that was in the 1980s and that by 2010, for example, like people are short memories. They don't remember a lot of what China could be capable of. So a lot of the companies, you know, when you talk to the companies at, at that point of time in the boardroom, every executive was talking about how quickly can we expand in China? Where are the potential avenues? And how do we get there? And that that kind of really explains a lot of the moves by these companies to try and tap China, which was seen as the next big market outside of the US. So you fast forward to now, though, you, you do realize this window of American technology supplying China's surveillance state is fast closing. And I probably should point to something that happened quite recently in October 7th, where the US government slapped export controls on high-end chips uh, to China. And it wasn't just the export of high-end chips, it was the export of tools, for example, tools to make these chips and US talent. Anything going into supporting high-end chip making in China, that would have to be stopped. So the window for US tech companies and US talent supporting like more nefarious and sinister means of surveillance in China is really, really quickly closing. I feel that that's the perfect um, segue into uh, one of the most intriguing characters in your book. Um, Josh, you write about a guy called uh, Chen Shui-sen, who in many ways, if we take a step back, seems to be, um, I mean, the question of this surveillance state, what's the ideology behind it in some ways is is one of the most interesting questions and and where did it come from and the answer again seems to be it came from the us um i mean could you tell us a little bit about the scientist chen shui-shen and his influence on xi jinping's dreams of control right yeah so chen shui-shen has got to be i think he's probably one of the most fascinating characters in the entire uh, modern story of, of, of U.S.-China relations, and he's his background is that he was a he was a kind of young protege who uh, came to the United States on a boxer indemnity scholarship. So his so really, I mean, it traces all the way back to the sort of the beginning of the U.S.-China uh, formal U.S.-China relationship. He came to the U.S. He he ended up uh, studying at, at Caltech and and sort of really having this sort of meteoric rise as a as a as an engineer, particularly as a rocket scientist. And uh, he, he sort of essentially helped build uh, the, the American rocket program uh, sort of before and, and, and after World War II. But in the 1950s or late 1940s, uh, he fell under suspicion during the McCarthy era. The, the FBI sort of accused him of being a communist. And he was at one point put under, under house arrest in his, in his house in L.A., um, under, under surveillance, ironically, in, in L.A. He spent 
roughly a year, he'd sort of had his, his security clearance revoked and he really didn't have anything to do. He couldn't teach classes anymore. And so he just sat in his study reading. And one of the books that he, he came across, uh, a book called Cybernetics, um, which, which, is, which is a sort of about a new field of study that was, that was pioneered by, by mostly American uh, scientists, but it was essentially uh, the first field of study to really take information uh, seriously as a topic, and it was really, it was concerned with how information uh, relates to control um, in, the, in the sort of in this really broad sense, uh, and so he. Uh, Chen Shou-sen, you know, he was really captivated by the the theories in this book, and he applied them to engineering. Eventually, he was he he wrote his own book uh, about this, and then shortly after that, was uh, ended up going back to China, uh, where he then subsequently built China's rocket system uh, and and space ex- and space program uh, and 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 participated in its nuclear program. And so his, you know, his application of cybernetics to, to, to engineering was incredibly successful, but he didn't stop there, right? His, his idea was that you could also use these engineering principles, the, the use of information in the controlling of systems, of complex systems, to engineer society. And this was an idea that just had a, had a profound impact on the, on the Communist Party. Uh, it's taught in, in the Central Party School in Beijing, you know, the, 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 the sort of main training academy for Communist Party cadres. Um, one of his protégés, a, a scientist named Song Jian, was involved in, in applying these ideas to the biggest social engineering experiment of the early sort of reform era, which was the one-child policy. Um, you know, and that turned out to be a disastrous, of course, but at the time, the party loved it. And so Chen's ideas just kind of continued to spread to the point where he, when he was on his deathbed, Hu Jintao visited him and sort of said, I remember those ideas you had about approaching problems systematically in a systematic way that was, that was really profound. This idea that you can use information, if you have enough information and you have the right tools to analyze it, you can sort of perfectly control and, and manipulate society as you, as you would a mechanical system. That is essentially the idea that animates the, the Chinese surveillance state now. And, and to stretch that thinking from the research you've done on the ground in Xinjiang, I mean, to what extent is his vision being realized um, in Xinjiang, which is in many ways the extreme end of the surveillance state in, inside China's borders? Right. I mean, I think Xinjiang is where you see his idea, um, his ideas implemented in the most complete way, whether they're whether they're being effective or not is another question. Right. And, and you know, essentially it is at bottom a utopian project. It's kind of has a, some real, you know, 20th century flavor to it. Right. This idea that like, oh, you know, that science uh, can solve everything, right? And science and math can sort of can, you know, can can be used to create a perfect society. And so in Xinjiang, you know, the theory is is that, that the Communist Party can, can can collect enough information on on the population there, particularly on the, the minority, the Turkic Muslim minority populations there that they've that they've been sort of struggling to manage uh, for for decades. That they can collect enough information on minorities there, enough data that they can predict individuals there who will in the future present a threat to the Communist Party's uh, sort of preferred rule, right? And that they can categorize those those threat, those people as threats, pull them out and re-educate them and re-engineer their thinking to sort of make them more Chinese or at least more loyal to the Communist Party. Um, and it's, so it's a really, I mean, it's, it is a shocking and remarkable and unprecedented campaign. I, mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like it. Uh, whether it's successful, I, we'll, ha- we'll have to see from what we've heard from people on the ground, you know, the what it hasn't produced loyalty so much as as, as a tremendous amount of fear and resentment. And we, we still have to see kind of what the long term consequences of that are going to be. Mm. 
And just staying with Xinjiang, Anne, I mean, there's a lot of biodata being harvested uh, as a result of this campaign in Xinjiang. I mean, what, what is happening to that biodata? Have we, have we got a good idea of that? So China has this national genomic database, um, which is being used as a, as a method for collecting biodata, not just from people from Xinjiang, but from all over, the, all over China. As well as um, as well as biodata collection uh, from firms that are operating outside of China that um, that have relationships with China's national genomic database. Um, so this is part of a larger effort on you know on one hand you know surveillance and con- population control, but also these kind of larger engineering questions of precision medicine, developing new new therapeutics. And there have also been claims of um, bioweapons development that uh, can, that are also occurring through this. Um, I I think that the the bioweapons claim is is more complicated. I think that it's it's less defended. So I, I want to bring that up because there's there's discourse about it, and I've you know I've interviewed people in um, the U.S. U.S. national security apparatus who are very concerned about it. But we've seen documented evidence of the uh, precision medicine movement and. Um, and that actually has really interesting uh, implications for China and its global partners, because whereas bioweapons might be a sort of hard power, precision medicine and advanced therapeutics, like, for example, advanced immunotherapies or um, particularly useful um, tools for responding to to things like new pandemics, um, can emerge from larger larger genomic databases that are very difficult to compile in places with more robust healthcare uh, data protections. And so this is a, also a form of potential soft power or influence um, through having more advanced uh, precision medicine therapeutics that can be exported. But you talk about advanced controls there. I mean, this, uh, this effort to collect and indeed purchase um, genetic data is well beyond China's borders. I mean, it's happening in America, in Europe, uh, in Australia, and even, I think, in the Solomon Islands. Um, you have these efforts by a Chinese company to uh, to reach in and collect as much data as it can. I mean, um, are they pushing an open door there? And, and what, I mean, what concerns should this raise? Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that, at least in the U.S. context, we see this environment where in order to support more open access to the market, there are open standardization practices that companies outside of outside of the U.S. Or, um, can follow. So, for example, the state pension plan of California um, sent their blood testing data to a lab in China that had a relationship with the China's with the Chinese genomic um, with the Chinese national genomic database. And so this is something that occurred completely legally. Um, it was not protected by U.S. law. Uh, and it was the result of an open standardization process that any company was able to participate in. So what we really see here is that there are a lot of places where there are gaps in terms of in these kind of less exciting or less sexy areas like blood testing for pension plans, which no one really even wants to think about. They just want it to all be done and taken care of, um, where there are really rich and complex forms of data, in this case, biodata that can then be extracted and, you know, under the appropriate circumstances of engineering. And as Josh was talking about, um, combined into much larger projects that might not be possible in in other national contexts. And to to go to some of the possibly sexier and more notable kinds of technologies um, that COVID has provided an opportunity for, I mean, Lisa, the QR codes um, and the apps that scour your phone for sensitive material, these sorts of things that it's used in Xinjiang, um, have these been spread um, beyond Xinjiang in the COVID era? 
Yeah, that's a great observation. So when Josh and I were first starting out writing our book, that was probably 2018, early 2019. Um, at that point, you know, our, our main takeaway was that unless you were a person of interest in China, and a person of interest is typically defined as, you know, there are seven categories that the police tend to monitor on a daily basis as a person of interest, fugitives being one of them, you know, drug pushes being another, others they feel might be, you know, a menace to national society, former protesters, for example, these people would be persons of interest or, you know, possible national security threats in Xinjiang. They, th this kind of group of people would probably mo be monitored on a real-time basis in China. But for the bulk of the Chinese population, China simply just didn't have like the bandwidth you know, to do so, because they, they would be collecting a ton of data and crunching a lot of data. And, you know, there would be a lot of waste and inefficiency. Fast forward to when COVID broke out from Wuhan, though, I think what you really saw with the spread of the health QR codes and with the, the way that, you know, the Chinese government tried to tackle it with a zero COVID policy was they began to track every single citizen using that health QR code. So fast forward to today, I think what you've been seeing with COVID and the way the Chinese Communist Party is handling COVID, you know, Xi Jinping's um, intention of zero COVID. So that means cracking down on COVID outbreaks whenever they occur. One way they've been trying to do it is with the digital surveillance. So you went from, you know, 2018 and 2019 when Josh and I starting the book and just a couple of subsets of people in the population were being monitored to now the entire population in China is being monitored because anyone could be a close contact. And if there was a COVID outbreak and they want to identify close contacts, then they're going to use that health QR code to pull out like the data of where you've been in the last two weeks to make sure that you've not come from a COVID hotspot. So in a way that health QR code is almost like a tracking device in your phone, tracking wherever you are moving, where you're walking, where you're, which mall you're heading into, which subway station you're heading into. So I think we've really seen surveillance turbocharge in China since the outbreak of COVID. But I mean, how do they use all that data? Like that's just, as, as you were saying, what had limited in the past was the ability to process all that. And, and, you know, to be frank, the fragmentation of the Chinese state. Have both of those barriers been overcome, the fragmentation and the technological challenge? So I think one of the big drawbacks to the Chinese surveillance state that prevents it from working as efficiently and as smoothly as we think it should is, you know, data islands. The presence of data islands within like the party itself and the government itself. So you have, for example, you know, I was walking past a Hangzhou road intersection one day and there were 10 cameras just hanging you know, on a traffic light. And I was asking a professor in that city, I said, why are there 10 cameras? And he said, oh, one is the traffic police, one is the police, one is the, you know, the jiedao, kind of like the street management office. So, and all the material doesn't feed into each other. So that, that's really, I think, one of the big drawbacks of the surveillance system that we want to think that it works efficiently and painlessly, but it really doesn't. It has a ton of these kinks. Uh, but China has identified this problem and they're working to break down these data islands. Um, and ultimately, you know, when the Ministry of State Security and the police want footage, they can just go with a warrant to these agencies and units to get that data. It's not frictionless, but it's possible.
And I would just add, I think, I think COVID has the COVID has really expanded uh, or accelerated that effort to, to to centralize data. The you know you could sort of see this the system evolving in real time as the as the pandemic was unfolding. You know the sort of early efforts to uh, to track people leaving Wuhan were, were a little were, were sort of subject to exactly this kind of fragmentation, right? You had different uh, telecom carriers with their own data tracking their users. You had various like, health authorities with 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 their own sort of isolated data sets, and, and it was a little bit um, inefficient at first. And but as time has gone on, they have centralized that data, and they now have these databases that are that do sort of interact much more efficiently uh, than they did before. So so the pandemic has really really pushed. Uh, given them an impetus to, to solve those problems that they didn't maybe have before. Yeah. And look, staying with those telcos, um, the biggest of them all, Huawei, uh, one of your chapters is set in Uganda, uh, a, a really fascinating uh, account. And I've, I've come across them a fair bit in my work in the Pacific, and they're, they're generally kind of a very effective but fairly charmless bully. But you bring out a, a very different side to them, just how willing uh, they were in Uganda to go to extraordinary lengths to keep their client, um, President Yusuvani, happy. I mean, could you tell us just how far did they go to to help out his government? Right. So, yeah, Huawei is, I mean, I, when you sort of talk about China exporting surveillance to other parts of the world, and uh, Huawei is the, the sort of tip of the spear. Um, they, they've, they've been incredibly aggressive around the, the world selling uh, what they call safe city systems, or sort of these, the, which are smart cities, but but uh, focused on security, and they involve a lot of facial recognition and other sorts of AI-driven surveillance. And you know, one of the reasons that that Huawei is so good at spreading these technologies and just generally has been so sex, successful globally is that they have this, they've taken this sort of American. Uh, corporate idea about the customer always being right to an extreme uh, that I don't think you see anywhere else. You know, one of the great examples is Uganda. Uh, they've been in Uganda for, for, for decades. And, and a few years ago, Yoweri Museveni, the president there, sort of approached them and, and the Chinese embassy about getting help dealing with various uh, security problems, uh, a lot of which were tracing, traced back to a, a young upstart opposition politician that he was worried about. Uh, so they they end up purchasing a sort of state surveillance starter kit from Huawei, uh, and as they were, you know, so Huawei, as it usually does, dispatched some some engineers to the Ugandan police department to help them kind of get everything set up and make sure everything was working well. And so they were basically stationed. Huawei engineers were stationed in the police in the central central police headquarters in Kampala in Uganda. And at one point, the Ugandan secret police were trying to use a, some malware that they had purchased from Israel to break into the phone of this opposition figure, Bobby Wine, who was, who was challenging Museveni uh, to try to figure out what his plans were, and they couldn't get it to work. Uh, and so they turned uh, uh, to, the, to these Huawei technicians, and they're like, hey, guys, we can't figure this out. Do you guys want to give it a shot? And so the Huawei technicians took it over, messed with it for a, for a half an hour, an hour, and they, got, and they broke into to Bobby Wine's phone. Um, so, Lisa, let's talk about these smart cities in a broader context beyond Uganda. I mean, effectively, what do they do and how do they, how do they function for, a, a, you know, the, com- the country that buys them? One thing about smart cities that tends to be very played down, particularly the smart cities in China, is that these cities are also used, you know, to keep streets safer, for example. Um, the, the Chinese have a term called safe city. Uh, they feel like a smart city is not complete unless unless it's a safe city. And when they call it a safe city, that that means using the same sort of systems that you saw in Xinjiang 
to kind of sieve out instead of potential national security threats to sieve out like fugitives or criminals. Uh, the other thing that you know smart cities do, and which China has been really trying to play up this narrative as well, is smart cities help make life in you know China's bigger cities very efficient. You know, it keeps streets clean when you have 24 seven um, a, a surveillance camera pointing down at the street, and there's an AI that kind of flags out to the cleaner or to um, in China's case the Chongguan kind of junior, junior varsity police flags out to them that someone put a pile of trash you know on the sidewalk that's blocking pedestrians from walking or you know some inconsiderate resident had drove his mercedes benz and parked it on the sidewalk you know that sort of things can be identified using ai using security camera networks and cleared off very quickly just to make life just much more efficient and smooth for like residents in that city uh, the, the one thing I would add about the export of Chinese-style smart cities overseas is that China has the setup for smart cities and for safe cities that very often you know, places like Uganda or in Africa or, or even in democracies doesn't exist. So to give you one example, one way that facial recognition cameras for the, the Ministry of Public Security, which is China, China's police, one way that they're so effective is because every Chinese person in China has a Chinese ID card. On that ID card, there's your name, there's your, you know, where your residence is, um, what your picture is. There's a lot of information stored on that card, so they immediately can pin a face to a name. So that allows facial recognition to be very quick and seamless when you're trying to identify someone using a police camera. You put this same sort of systems in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where people don't even have an ID card. You know, national ID cards are still in the rollout in these areas. Um, it doesn't work as well. The other thing to point out as well is very often, these systems are pretty complicated pieces of technology. It's not easy to run a command and control system 100 or 200 security cameras in a city. Uh, China has the technological advantages um, and the trained workforce to do so, but it doesn't mean every country does. And really these systems are only as good as like the man in the uniform behind the screen. So if you don't have trained personnel in places like Africa or you know developing parts of the world where China has sold these systems, Myanmar, for example, then the system very often turns out to be a white elephant. Yeah. And can I zero in a little bit on your time in Hangzhou? Because in some ways, that's the most chilling part of your book is is the the seductive nature of this surveillance that the citizens themselves, um, from your account, were happy to be surveilled. And even the Chengguan, who are probably the most loathed population in the whole of China, were, were happily giving you an interview, which is, as far as I know, probably the first for a Wall Street Journal journalist. Could this, in the end, this vision come to be because of this reason, because it does make things convenient? So Hangzhou was an interesting one. Uh, and, and Josh and I were thinking of, while we were laying out the thesis of our book and trying to figure out what we were going to write about, we didn't want to purely portray state surveillance in China as oppressive and sinister, because there was obviously, you know, state surveillance is two sides of a coin. And there's that opposite side of state surveillance in which the Chinese government is trying to use surveillance to make 
Chinese residents' lives just more seamless um, and more frictionless. So we chose Hangzhou ultimately out of all the big Chinese cities, and all the big Chinese cities have similar systems. We chose Hangzhou because Hangzhou was home to Alibaba, which is one of China's biggest internet companies, and Hangzhou was also home to the world's two largest security camera makers, Hikvision and Tahua. So that kind of meant the Chinese government was super embracing of any sort of digital technology, you know, to kind of make the public sector just more efficient and function better. Uh, so when I first approached the Chengguan, and probably I should make an, give an introduction to what the Chengguan in China is, because there is no Western equivalent. Um, the Chengguan in China are called, you know, the Urban Public Administration Street Management Force. And they're somewhat seen as like junior varsity police in the sense that they keep law and order on the streets, but they don't have the power to arrest you. So very, very frankly, um, the Chengguan haven't had a very good reputation in China because of that, because they have no power, mm -hmm. but they want to get things done. So they very often are seen as bullies or resort to violence. So they have a terrible, terrible reputation in China. The Chengguan in Hangzhou, was so was very welcoming when I asked for an interview because they were so proud of the technology and what this technology had done for them. Uh, and the technology in particular I'm talking about is this system called CityEye, where they had installed street cameras outside many points in that particular district. So outside schools, outside hospitals, at street corners, you know, cameras pointing down like dark alleyways. Uh, and the Chengguan was saying that these cameras were equipped with AI. So the AI could tell them when you know, something was going wrong, so they could quickly go down to fix the problem. And, you know, that had a benefit of just having a 24-7 policeman instead of just like a 9-6 to one is, for example, if someone throws trash or decides to do laundry on the sidewalk uh, at 6 a.m. in the morning, you know who put it there. So the, the Chengguan gets flagged out with the notice and they go down and they ask this person to take take the laundry off the sidewalk, don't dry laundry on the sidewalk because it's a public, you know, it's a public place. Um, but the added benefit to that was the Chongguan in Hangzhou actually felt that it helped to smooth relations between them and the people they were serving because with a camera, you have photographic evidence of who did it. So in the past, it was always, they would go down and ask someone to clean up the trash that had been put there. And the, uh, the person they had accused would push back and saying, you know, it's not me. And very often this would end up in these fights and awful quarrels that would go viral on social media. So now there's like photo evidence and people are a lot more compliant and it just makes their relationship with the people they serve so much better. I mean, and one of the interesting things or the, the, the wrinkles um, about looking at privacy and the collection of data in China is They've introduced um, some safeguards. Uh, there's this act that's been introduced called the Personal Information Protection Law um, that does seem to give Chinese consumers some right, at least when it comes to the tech companies themselves. Do Chinese consumers in some ways actually have more rights than American consumers? Yeah, so this is something that's really a really interesting dimension of the of national security data audits as well as user protections in China. So there are more mechanisms in place to prevent extractive data gathering about consumers by corporations in China than there might be in, in a U.S. context, for example. Now, what we do see is that this doesn't necessarily mean that that user data isn't aggregated um, by the government or accessible by the Chinese government, but there are actually more limitations and a kind of 
less aggressive form of surveillance capitalism in the in the current Chinese system. And this is a really interesting interplay between the power of the Chinese private sector and the power of the public sector. So in some ways it it limits the power of the private sector in extracting and in extracting user data and competing with the government, but it also has the effect of of offering additional protections for consumers from corporations. And and Josh, is this something you've come across in your reporting? You know, this idea of, of privacy and, and the protection of, of individual data in China is, was one of the topics that sort of changed the most, evolved the most as we were writing our book. Uh, it was really kind of hard to keep keep our finger on it. But but yeah, we did, we did encounter that. And I think what we discovered was, you know, if you look at the way that the Communist Party has dealt with privacy, it's really fascinating. And I think actually really nuanced and savvy uh, in the sense that I think the Communist Party grasps the, the fundamental nature of privacy of a, as a concept, which is that it's incredibly ma- like malleable, right? You know, if you, if you ask someone to define what privacy is, it's actually really hard. Right. Uh, Because it's different in different contexts, depending on what you're talking about. And so I think that they saw this and probably over the last decade, you've actually had a sort of privacy consciousness growing up in certain pockets of certain big cities in China. Right. And, um, you know, one of the most famous episodes of this was when Robin Lee, the CEO of of Baidu, uh, was was at a conference in Beijing and, 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 you know, was talking about the advantages of Chinese companies. And one of them he said was that Chinese people don't care at all about privacy, which means you can just take their data and they won't complain about it. And as soon as he said that, it blew up. It became this huge controversy in China and he had to backtrack. And and what was more interesting was that state media, China Central Television, People's Daily, they all piled on. People just started slamming this guy, right? And it, it was, and and I think what it came down to is they, they realized, the Communist Party realized that, yes, they could try to censor this, this conversation, but instead what they did was they redefined privacy, right? And they defined it as almost solely in terms of companies, right? The relationship between companies and consumers, that is where privacy is allowed to exist. Uh, and, it, and the government sort of positioned itself as being on the side of, of people, of the citizenry, right? And so, you know, defending them against the rapacious data practices of, of Chinese tech companies. Meanwhile, uh, of course, the Chinese government is collecting uh, huge amounts of data and doing whatever it wants. But but I think there's a sense in China, I think they, the government perceives or the party perceives correctly that most people in China are comfortable with the idea of the government having their data. And that's and that's fine. Um, and so this is a way for them, for the for the party to sort of exert control on, a, on the tech sector, which is something they've always been uh, eager to do. Um, starting with you, Anne, um, I mean, can the West fight back when it comes to data trafficking or, or has the war, as you phrase it in the subtitle of your book, already been won or, if you like, even on the Western side surrendered because of our lack of data control? In the final chapter of my book, I talk about potential potential responses to, to data trafficking, and I don't call them solutions because I don't think that there are necessarily solutions to to dealing with this process of of extraction largely because the US and and other and other developed countries are so dependent on social platforms that it's very difficult to actually make big changes what I do argue is that we should think about these issues in the context uh, similarly to how we think about climate change it's a it's a question of mitigation rather than a question of complete resolution so um, so I look at different ideas for stabilizing data flows. So establishing uh, a more robust consensus between um, democratic and democratic allies and partners in terms of what actually constitutes extractive data practices, uh, establishing robust national data regulations that are consistent across nations, 
um, and also working in working in multi-stakeholder and multilateral environments to become more in, involved in establishing standards for new technologies, something that we've seen China become very involved with um, and where there's a distinct advantage that the Chinese government has in terms of its ability to essentially force Chinese companies to share early prototypes of things like facial recognition practices and, and, um, and technologies um, in order to establish forward-looking standards, something that commercial firms uh, in other countries would be very unwilling to do. So there are a lot of ways that this isn't going to be resolved, but I think that at a very minimum, looking for, for more consensus um, in, in allies and partners in, the, in um, democracies and in, for, in countries that are, that are interested in preventing data trafficking is, is really important. Josh, your thoughts, um, and possibly um, broadening out to include the the surveillance, or the this, if you like, the the appeal of the surveillance state. Yeah, you know, actually, Anne had a really um, useful analogy in in her book uh, that, that kind of encapsulates the challenge of, of dealing with this question, and, and that is this, you know, this notion of of you know the risks around data being sort of like climate change. Right, in that it's a it's a threat that's sort of constant. It's there, but it's but the the you know it's kind of in the background. So people know it's a problem, but they're not. They don't really you know it's kind of inchoate and it's sort of in the future, right? And then people only really pay attention to it when there's a crisis, and then even then they quickly forget about it, right? So I think that's the you know to me that's the the big challenge, um, the most fundamental challenge when you when you're talking about how to deal with all of this is that um, you know especially in the United States because of surveillance capitalism, people are so conditioned to this idea of their data being harvested. Um, and and they're and they're sort of addicted to the conveniences, you know, that, that, that Lisa was mentioning. I mean, they sort of also exist in the U.S., but in a more commercial sense. And so, you know, I think the first step, and I guess this is probably typical of a journalist, is you know, is is transparency, right? I think what what democracies need is a really robust conversation around around these technologies and how to manage them, so that there is pressure on politicians to actually. Uh, develop these pol- develop policies and develop approaches to to mitigating uh, all the ways that they can that they that these technologies can cause harm, and uh, you know I think there's hope in the in, in the United States. I mean it's it's a kind of twisted hope, but um, you know we have the U.S. did overturn Roe versus Wade recently, so now there are states in in, in the U.S. that are that are banning abortion or considering bans on abortion, which opens up this possibility that police in the United States, for example, will be able to act like police in China and go to technology companies and request data on, for example, women who are searching for abortion drugs in a, in a given area or, or people who are visiting abortion clinics across state lines and that sort of thing. And I think that that is one of these scenarios that will hopefully really wake people up to what states can do with data uh, and, and the ways that that can affect people's lives. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But I really think it probably starts with transparency and it starts with a, a sort of more awareness and more debate about about these technologies. And Lisa, some final thoughts from you. Maybe I, I thought with my section, I'll do a bit of a value add in terms of sharing what I've found in, in our research on some of the good practices and best practices we've seen globally. Um, you know, the EU definitely is one of them and they're way ahead on this. They have a draft AI act in practice. And this act basically governs how algorithms are used in every sort of context, including policing. Uh, and it has banned real-time AI use, um, you know, facial recognition and stuff like that for policing and law enforcement. 
So that's already one, you know, one step forward because you've already taken a stand. You know, that's one step beyond what China has done or like the US has done, for example. And in the UK, like what's commendable about them as well is they have what they call a biometrics commissioner. Uh, it used to be called the surveillance camera commissioner, but it's changed its name since. And this commissioner essentially goes, uh, it regulates and, and asks law enforcement agencies and companies to hand in annual reports on how they're, how they're using AI, for example, how they're using surveillance cameras and biometrics and how efficient its use is. It's an extra safeguard and a check and balance to the use of such technologies because you have to prove why you're using these technologies. Are they even better than the current technologies you have that aren't as evasive, for example? You know, all this is required by the commissioner. And they also have like an act, you know, a surveillance camera kind of code of conduct, um, how you should be using these cameras. You know, I do think transparency um, and just having the world agree on like, common AI standards uh, and common use of new technologies is a very important thing. But I just wanted to point out like, there are examples out there that we could learn from or at least draw from. Wonderful. Hey, Lisa, Josh, and Anne, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Graham. Thank you so it was a real pleasure. You've been listening to Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Lisa Lin, Anne Kokus, and Josh Chin. Our background research is by Wing Kwong. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.